Hello and welcome to the Divine Renovation Podcast, where we seek to inspire and equip you to bring your parish from maintenance to mission. My name is Dan O'Rourke, and I'm in studio today for part two of a podcast. So if you missed the earlier version of this podcast, you got to go back, watch last week's podcast, because these two guys that are with me got so fired up, they got angry with me for cutting <laughs> them off. And so we're back in studio. I've got Rob McDowell, one of our Divine Renovation coaches. Rob, good morning. Good to see you. Hello, Dan. It's great to be here. And I got Father James Mallon. Father James, always good to be with you. I'm very well. You know, it was really a real challenge this morning because we we're doing the follow-up. I had to remember what I was wearing last week. <laughs> And I choose carefully from my wardrobe. <laughs> it's hard for me when I'm not wearing plaid to know what I'm supposed to. Anyway, so. So, so look, guys, we, we had a great conversation last, uh, last week around uh, the difference between catechesis and, evangel- and evangelization and, and some of the tensions and misunderstandings that are often uh, in, in that conversation. Now, we began to touch, about, uh, touch on, on sort of a theological higher level. We touched on the practical a little bit. But what was clear after the, the conversation we had last week is that there was a lot left unsaid, and both of you guys uh, wanted to come back in and have this conversation again. So I'm excited for us to be back. Um, but let me open with, with, with a question, and let me, let's make it specific about sacraments to start off, and then we're going to let this conversation go where it needs to go. Uh, when it comes to sacraments, uh, they're, they're a part of, of, our, of our formation, and my question is, is the validity of a sacrament sufficient for the evangelization of, of a Catholic person? No. Uh, and the church itself teaches that. And, and by the way, you know, sacraments aren't simply valid, uh, not necessarily, they're valid under particular conditions that, mm-hmm. the, you know, what the guidelines the church gives for their validity uh, are, are present, and also that the minister of the sacrament has the intention to do what the church does. And that idea of sacraments being valid was was a, a clarification that came that came pretty early, like I think around the 4th century, um, that really was able to address a question when it came to flawed ministers, that you know, a minister of the sacrament who's who's maybe weak or ends up uh, at, at that time in in, in uh, North Africa when the church was persecuted, they were burning, they would be forced to burn incense to a statue of the, of the emperor, and some of the clergy actually chickened out and did it. And afterwards, when they repented, uh, the question was, well, do we let them back in? And well, you know, that that guy did, did my wedding. Does that mean my wedding isn't isn't valid? Mm. Or he baptized my, my members of my family? So the question was, no. Ultimately, uh, sacraments, the validity of the sacraments, God's oath that that He's made in, in, through through the sacraments, is not dependent on the personal sanct. Uh, sanctity of the minister of the sacrament. Thanks be to God. That's a that was a very early insight that the church had, but the church has always made a distinction t- between the validity in the one hand and fruitfulness on the other. Fruitfulness on 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 on, on, on the other hand, and you know, in today's day and age, I, I think when you look at questions of validity. Uh, it, it's kind of you're getting into the realm of the metaphysical in a, in a sense. Uh, it's a very abstract question, and, and I've struggled with this as a pastor. Uh, and I once heard a priest uh, saying it like this at a talk. He said this, if the sacraments are effective, why are they not effective? Ooh. <laughs> no, that would seem to uh, go against the principle of uh, Aristotle's principle of non-contradiction, which says a thing cannot both be and not be in the same way. Uh, but the point is that he's talking about two different levels: effective um, in terms of objective validity, so doing you know um, changing the person, doing you know in, in the level of the abstract, but not effective in the sense of fruitfulness in terms of uh, manifesting fruit uh, mm-hmm. in, in in the person's life, making a making a change to 
a person's life. And that is, uh, that's a struggle that we're in in the church right now because... You know, so I, I grew up yeah. in, in, uh, in the Catholic school system in Ontario, and I, I think I've shared some stories of that on the podcast before. But, you know, one of the things that, that in my experience of, of growing up, was that, you know, we were, we were absolutely guided, uh, and I use that term uh, generously, we were guided through the process of our sacraments uh, th- through school, right? And so that was where I experienced uh, and, and celebrated our sacraments. So... Going through that process with everyone in my class, there's not a single person who did not experience that. We collectively went through it. Uh, It was like a forced march over the hill. Um, uh, In doing so, was I was that sufficient in terms of making me a disciple? Was it, it, no, it wasn't, make- and it probably was detrimental because I believe that in our pastoral practice, in our schools, in our parishes, with young people, when we put young people who who are not evangelized through catechesis and sacraments, we immunize them to the power of the gospel. That's, and that's why they're leaving in droves. And they think that what they're rejecting is, is what they experienced, and therefore what they reject is the real thing, when in fact it's not the, the, the real thing. You know, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I believe it's paragraph 1066, says that evangelization and conversion must precede uh, liturgy and sacraments. I mean, we have these statements that lay it down. Um, again, I think last week I quoted the Aparecida document that talked about... Um, um, you know, proclamation, then conversion, and then the discipleship stage of the formation of missionary disciples, which is the third stage. At that point, it says it's here, it's at this point that that catechesis and sacraments really come into play. Although in stage two of conversion, it says that conversion will be actualized in either the sacrament of baptism mm-hmm. or the sacrament of reconciliation. Because if if you have conversion... You know, we're not just converted to me and Jesus. We're we're converted in that encounter with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and coming into relationship with God, who is our Father. We were then brought to our mother, the church. I mean, we're brought into the community of believers. So it will ultimately lead to baptize to, to being baptized. If you've been away from church, it's the sacrament of reconciliation. So the sacraments do come in at that point. But what's clear is that we're saying that there's this experience of conversion beforehand. So, <clears throat> with that being said. And then we wrestle all the time with the difference between what's evangelization, what's catechesis. What are we missing? Like, what, like, why is it that what you're explaining so often we just default to more of a catechesis perspective in, in how we approach church and, and how we approach, you know, faith development, whether, whether that's kids or adults or whatever the case is. So what are, we, what are we missing in that? Because obviously we're missing something. Well, I think we're missing it because we think we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, you know, and here's something that... It's a bit uh, geeky, I suppose, and some of you might have, might have heard this before, but in the early 4th century, when St. Jerome translated the Greek New Testament, he, to, he, in the Great Commission, instead of the four tasks, the four distinct verbs, to go make disciples, baptize, and teach, with making disciples at the heart of the Great Commission, mathetusity in Greek, he translated mathetusity to being dociti omnes gentes, Teach all nations. So literally, literally, St. Jerome's translation of the Great Commission says, as you go, teach all nations, baptizing them and teaching them again. It's dociti docentes. He uses the same verb twice. And so you get a Great Commission, go, teach, baptize, teach. And guess what? That's what we do. We teach, we baptize, and we teach. We do catechesis, sacraments, and more catechesis. And that idea of, of teaching all nations, teaching instead of making disciples. Because we talked last time about, about 
a disciple is the core word uh, in, in Greek means a learner. And, and to get that capacity to learn, you've got to have a hunger to learn. You've got to have an interest. See, the difference between not knowing and not caring, making a disciple is about creating someone who, is, is care, who cares, who has a thirst for knowledge. And, and that translation of, of St. Jerome, uh, and I don't think he definitely didn't mean anything by it, but it, it shaped us tremendously. Uh, it was incorporated into the, into the liturgy. Uh, very early on, uh, even to this day, if you look at the, the rite of baptism for the blessing of water, it's Lord, you, the prayer says, Lord, you told your disciples to go and teach all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit. In the Liturgy of the Hours, that, that text is, is present. In the Dewey Rames Bible, the earliest English translation, the first English translation of the Bible, um, uh, says, go teach all nations. Even the King James Bible says, go teach all nations. So this translation of the Greek mathetusity as go make disciples really is only in the last 50, 60 years that that kind of language has been restored um, to our vocabulary. Um, just in time, I think, for the, for the end of Christendom. Because in, the, in, a, in a Christendom culture, where kind of like you went with the flow, everyone flowed into church, um, you know, everyone just kind of went along. And I'm not saying it wasn't, it wasn't genuine, but we didn't have the kind of cultural forces that we do today that kind of uh, pick people off. Because we all know today, if we simply do what our parents or grandparents did for their children, we won't stand a snowball's chance in you-know-where uh, to, to continue uh, to, to live as people of faith into the future. So we have to help people encounter Jesus in a different way Absolutely. than we traditionally have. So what are some of the things that we've unpacked over the years that have helped us do that? I think, you know, there's always a certain percentage of people who are hardwired that, that they will lead into, into their, their faith life through the intellectual. Uh, they will reason their way in. You know, obviously, God's grace is at work in all of that process. They're, they'll be attracted by beauty. They, they'll, they'll kind of have a bit of a philosophical bent. They'll, they'll read books. Uh, I've met... And, and accompanied many, many people who came from a non-Christian background who slowly uh, discovered the idea, you know, through beauty, through history, the idea of, of, of God. And they, they looked at and they studied history and they, they studied the, the person of Jesus and his claims and came to the conclusion that it must be real. And through the intellectual research, even becoming Catholic, then it moved to the encounter of the person. Today, however, I think the vast majority of people in our kind of a postmodern age, we, we're very suspicious of universal truth claims. And for most people out there, if again, and if, we're, if we are to be a missionary church, that means we've got to engage the people of our time, not the people of a past time, uh, a, a, a time of the past. I think most people today are, are looking for an experience. They're looking for, give me something that works. Give me something that makes a difference. That's why if you go to a bookstore, you, the the I mean, some of the crazy stuff you find in, in bookstores, like all the New Age stuff, it's like the people that buy this and do it, like, do they actually believe this? I, I, I had a hard time to think that people actually believe all this stuff. I don't think that's really the issue. I think what they're saying, they're not asking, is this true? They're asking, does this work? Or is it real? Is it, is it going to be real for yeah. me? Is it going to make me a better person? Is it going to help me to manage uh, the, the challenges of life? Because certainly most of them who come from a Christian background, they've all... they. They almost have the T-shirt that says, "Been there, done that, tried that, that didn't work." You know, yeah. if you want a spirituality that's going to be transformative, do, do yoga. 
Because Christianity doesn't give you anything except burdens and headaches. It certainly feels more practical. I mean, yoga, because it, it, it's, it's, it's tangible. The same way that, you know, the, the, the pretty little crystals are. I mean, they become very tangible. And so it's something that we feel like we can do. Whereas in, in many ways, and at least my experience, because this was this so, so clearly reflects my own growing up in, inside of a Catholic school system, you know, the things I, that I was, I was put through in Catholic school, the things I was taught, felt utterly unpractical. Yeah. <laughs> so it's well, like, okay, well, I'd rather probably be taught the... by people who, who didn't have a living relationship with the Lord themselves. They're yeah. just passing on information. Yeah, well, what I would say around that is what it's, it, it's great because we can be spiritual, but we can control it on our own terms as opposed to recognizing that as we encounter Jesus, <clears throat> and I, I'd be curious to know how this is through your lens uh, around this, but th- there's got to be that fundamental choice and surrender yes. of who we're following. Well, and it seems to be quite often that when we're, and this is your whole, your do you do you know or do you care sort of a thing, right? Like making the choice to submit and follow is choosing to care. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, anytime you fall in love, there's there's a submission, yeah. <laughs> there's a following, you yeah. know, like that that that's the the heart of any of, of that yeah. relationship. But but in a lot of what we've seen in sacraments, is people not they're they're submitting to. Maybe some classes, maybe they're submitting to their parents' or grandparents' wishes, but they're not submitting to the person of Jesus Christ. No, and, and it, or, or to even a commitment to, to continuing in community with the church. In fact, people often step into sacraments, ironically, of initiation yeah. with a full declaration that they have absolutely zero intention of coming back. In fact, manifestly, in the case of confirmation, it is, it is a ritualized apostasy. It truly is. It's like... This is this is the end of church for me. Like I'm a I'm I'm now a grown up and I can officially say adios, and it becomes the absolute opposite of of what it's meant to be, which is which is absolutely insane. Well, it's because we submit ourselves not not even not, not even to the faith, but we submit ourselves to the customs of the faith, particularly those that are rituals of initiation for key moments in life, right? So, what what was as a as a Catholic, quote unquote Catholic, <clears throat> you know, what am I going to do? I'll show up to get my kid baptized. I'll show up to get my kid confirmed, and I'll show up to for a marriage. That's what I'm showing and the, up the, for. The sad thing is, is that again, we've we've confirmed in them the the fact of what they think they're rejecting is the real thing. And because we go along with it, it it's obviously, obviously it's obviously worthy of, of rejection. Here's the thing. I think of the story of the paralytic um, that's brought to the, the feet of Jesus. You know, I think of the, 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 the people who brought him. You know, they had the, the, the conviction that, that bringing him to the feet of Jesus would make all the difference. I always think, you know, they, they didn't, like, get to the edge of the crowd and say, you know, this is close enough. Let's just put him down here. I mean, we're, we're in reasonable proximity of Jesus. No, it's when he's brought to the feet of Jesus. And they, they were willing to climb up on Peter's roof, tear a hole in the roof, lower him down, do all of that stuff. They, they did whatever it took. They tore through any obstacle. And it's when he's at the feet of Jesus, Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. He experienced forgiveness, healing. He stands up and he walks. That, that is the goal of the church, to bring people to the feet of Jesus, not to set them down at the edge of the crowd so that, so that people don't encounter. I mean, we, 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 it's almost like we, we lay people around the outside of the crowd and pat ourselves on the back and said, yeah, we brought 40 people to the outskirts, but we didn't bring anyone to the feet of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the, that's the tragic thing of our, of our own present time. And I'm thinking back to this cultural rejection of, of Christianity as a, as a spirituality that can actually benefit your life or, 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 or change your life. I remember years ago, maybe 25 years ago, watching the movie Chocolat. 
Is that even a... No, it wasn't. It was uh, probably about... Yeah, it was probably about 20 years ago I watched it. I, I'm not recommending it, but from a academic point of view, it might be worthwhile to look at because what in this movie, in this little uh, French traditional Catholic town, this person comes from the outside and she makes chocolate. And basically the whole movie goes through uh, the life of the people and shows how dysfunctional and messed up their lives are. It shows in uh, different sacraments, the sacrament of the Eucharist, the marriage, and basically it shows this chocolate as a as a new sacrament. In fact, there's even a scene where the the, the, the lady puts, the, the, the character puts a wafer of chocolate on the tongue of a person, and it's this, this chocolate will change your life. And all this Christianity stuff is, is useless, <laughs> and the movie ends with everyone leaving the church on Easter Sunday and dancing around a maypole and eating chocolate. So, the, you know, the whole premise of the movie is... Church Christianity, it, it's, it's oppressive, and it doesn't change your life. It won't, it won't add value to your life, but a kind of hedonistic, unfettered re, you know, rejection of traditional values, that's what sets you free. Well, I'd say, I'd say if, you're, if your understanding of it is just dead religion, then you're right. But that's what most people's experience well, of yeah, it is. But, you know, I'm just, that's the thing. Yeah, that's you know. the tragedy. And as long as we continue to do what we we're doing without helping people to realize, you know, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because that whole movie was about taste and see that chocolate is good and realize that the Lord is not good. And as long as we continue to practice it in this way, it's our own fault. Sorry, I'm getting a little worked up here. <laughs> I don't think you need to apologize. <laughs> so, uh, so, again, coming back to the church and this whole idea of clarity around evangelization, and catechesis, what do we fundamentally need to change about our thinking to see evangelization and catechesis as while maybe influencing each other, two different things? Yeah. Because I get this question all the time, and you know, sometimes even I, I confuse myself in trying to give answers to people yeah. about it. No, I, I be, said last time I, I had been rereading uh, Pope Paul VI, Evangelii Nunciandi, which is still a phenomenal document. And you know, it's the first time, 10 years after the council, that he writes this, that evangelization is put squarely in, 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 you know, in, in, in the forefront, declared to be absolutely the mission of the church. And the goal of evangelization is conversion, conversion of individuals, conversion of cultures. Um, but he starts off with a broad definition of evangelization that basically says, because evangelization is the vocation proper to the church, in a sense, everything the church does and is, is evangelization, including proclamation, including serving the poor, including catechesis and sacraments. He says it's all evangelization. But then inside this document, he says quite clearly that, that at, its, at its foundation, its summit, and its center is the explicit proclamation uh, of the person of Jesus Christ and bringing people so that they can come to know him. And, and from there, in the years that followed, you know, with Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict, uh, and into Pope Francis, we have this, I think, a growing distinction uh, between such things as evangelization. He even talks about pre-evangelization in this, in this document. So pre-evangelization, evangelization, catechesis, and, and, and other aspects of growing as a disciple. That, those distinctions become clearer in the writings of John Paul and especially Pope Benedict, uh, so I think that's a bit of where we're we're struggling with. The truth is that uh, the Synod on New Evangelization, the reason given for having that Synod is because it said explicitly that that the the concept of New Evangelization has not 
been properly understood nor received. So we have the basic insight of this document in 1975, which still is not completely understood or received, and the fact that this document has both a, a narrow, has the seeds of a, 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 narrower, a narrower definition of evangelization, but also the broad. And so I think that sometimes can be a bit confusing for people. Would it be, <clears throat> so would it be fair to say that there, you can have gone through sacraments and you're living with a false sense of security because you've not allowed yourself to submit to the person of Jesus Christ? Yes, absolutely. It happens all the time. And so, so again, what are some of the things that we've attempted to do to change that trend, to help people understand that as important as sacraments are, as important as the grace that you receive through sacraments, if, if you're not going to walk out and walk out of those sacraments through faith, then you're essentially rejecting the grace that comes through them. Yeah, because sacraments come with great responsibility. And it's the thing, I mean, the, the, the Latin for, for sacramentum, um, which is, is used in, in Jerome's uh, translation of, of, in Paul's letters to the Ephesians, Colossians, uh, no, it's Ephesians where Paul talks about marriage and how it's a great mystery, you know, that this is the marriage between man and woman is like the relationship of Jesus and the church. This is a great mystery. In St. Jerome's uh, translation, the term musterion in Greek is translated as sacramentum. It's a great sacrament. And the sacramentum was the oath that mm-hmm. the Roman soldier took. It was a sacred oath. A sacrament, in a sense, is a sacred oath. And so, it's, now, it's first and primarily, we, we have to avoid being Pelagian or rather semi-Pelagian that, you know, okay, we make an oath to God, and if we make a good promise to God, then God will come and respond to us. No, it's God who acts first. God who first loves us. See, grace is everything. Grace precedes everything. And so God first makes an oath to us, out of love, but our, our covenant faith means that I respond in love to, to that oath that, that God has, has made. And the call then is to a, a life of sanctity. Holiness and mission is the, is the call that arises out of all the sacraments, and especially the sacrament of baptism. Uh, but if we just see, if see as the sacrament says, you know, I get a bunch of grace, you know, if we see these things reduced to simply, you know, fire insurance, you know, I, I, I got my, uh, my, my, my ticket stamped, so I go to heaven when I die. And we've missed the whole point. I mean, the whole point is uh, we've got, to, we're Christianized. We're, we're to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. I mean, this is tied in with the fact that we've this, you know, religious consumerism and we get our tickets stamped and we're selling fire insurance. And the goal of the Christian life is to do the absolute bare minimum. So I go to heaven when I die without any idea that, hey, guess what? We're, we're, we're here. The Lord has anointed us, given us his spirit to continue his work on earth. We've, have you noticed that our world is kind of messed up? Have you noticed that our world could be a better place? That's the point. We've got a mission. We've, we've got to get to work in, in, in being instruments of seeing the kingdom of God grow because the church is the, supposed to be the foretaste of the kingdom, but it's not the kingdom. Sorry, I'm doing a lot of talking. We've got uh, we've got a lot of parishes. In fact, I was at a parish uh, earlier today, and um, a great parish. But I, what I recognized was that parish. Uh, you know, when they started with with Alpha, they had some success, and so they they quickly decided, well, we got to we got to disciple some of these people. So they stopped Alpha and they started discipling people. And this is a tension that we see over and over again at the parish level and at the diocesan level. We're so quick to want to invest in catechizing and and forming uh, our, our our newly made disciples that will let go of evangelization. Is is that the way we should do it? Because so many groups that 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 both 
come alongside parishes and, and dioceses that have a, a desire to bring people alive in their faith. They invest heavily in this, this notion that we have to form people so they can go be good evangelists. Yes. <laughs> Um, no, it's both and, and it's yes. like, how do you help, how do you help the newly evangelized get involved in the process of reaching out to others that need to be evangelized? And that's part but of, if I'm of newly evangelized, and, that's, Rob, no, no, and that's part of the, that's part of the catechesis process. Yeah. But Rob, honestly, I, I'm newly evangelized. I came to faith last week and you're asking me to go evangelize. I barely know Jesus. How can I possibly evangelize? What happens all the time? You do because, but here, here's the great irony is that our best evangelists are, are the newly evangelized. And here's, here's the thing. We generally evangelize according to the way in which we were evangelized. So if you were evangelized by someone who you met for coffee and personally shared their faith with you and, 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 and gave you books to read and led you through a process and, and, and such, then in your mind, that's what evangelization is going to be. So I've got to learn how to do the same thing. And that's fine. A lot of people are evangelized in that way. I think of a tool like Alpha. What is, what is, Alpha is a come and see evangelization. It's come and see. You, even when you invite someone to Alpha, you don't say, hey, would you like to come and take this 10-week course? No. You say, hey, we've got this thing um, the first night. It, it's, why don't you just come and see? You don't have to commit to anything beyond 10 weeks. You come and see. And, and then the, the, at the end, the last week is the first week of the next thing. And people go out and they tell their friends, come and see. And then you start the next course in a few weeks. And I remember a, a light bulb moment for one of our parishioners uh, a number of years ago who said, oh, I could never do evangelization. I could never be that person. They'd invited like six people to Alpha who in themselves, many of them had had conversions. It was like, who invited them? Well, I did. Well, don't you see? You evangelized. They're like, oh, my goodness. All I did was come and say, come and see. Yeah, and that's exactly what, what uh, we find in, in the first chapter of John. I mean... <laughs> The, the disciples of John the Baptist who followed Jesus, it was kind of this weird thing, you know, they're following behind. He turns around and said, well, what do you want? It's like, Master, what, where do you live? He says, Jesus says, come and see. Mm. And he, he spent the afternoon with him and then went and found Peter and said, we found the Messiah. And it didn't say they spent the afternoon with him and then they did Bible studies for four years and then they went out and said, we found the Messiah. Well, <laughs> if you were to think through the, the lens of anything else, that, that you like or changes your life. Like, you know, you think we're big coffee drinkers, you know, so whether it's Tim Hortons or Starbucks or some independent place, you know, like if you drink a coffee and you like it, you tell someone about it. You don't drink the coffee, love it, and then I got to research it and yeah. find out where the beans are from I'm gonna and then find out the, the business I'm model. Roll and, Tim, do you say to Tim Hortons or Starbucks? I, I, I named a bunch. Well, let's say, let's, say, let's be clear. We're, let's say Tim We're Canadians. <laughs> let's go with Tim Hortons. Way yeah. to go, buddy. So, you know, so, you know, I, I need to find out about their corporate model and I need, you I know, like join the this, Tim Horton fan club. Yeah, I need to all this. And then a year from now, if I have enough I'm information, gonna, I'm going to study the recipe in the original Greek. Yeah. Yeah. And then if I know enough, then I'll tell someone else that Tim Horton's coffee is good and they should drink one. But did you know what how often happens? <laughs> See, here's this thing. It's, it's both. And I mean, what is the, the end desire? Here's the thing. We've got to be clear that the one who said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them and teach them, he said it. So we've got to first evangelize, we've got to bring them to the sacraments, and we've got to teach, and that's a lifelong thing. That same Lord also said, do this in memory of me. So we've got to be clear that the end point, we're, we're bringing people to the sacraments, for sure, bringing people into the church, for sure. Um, but 
in terms of getting a momentum and an evangelistic tool and a culture of evangelization, we please, literally, for the love of God, can we stop putting out models that say first we evangelize and then we put people through formation for five years before we turn them loose? Do you know what happens fi- within five years if you form people for five years? You, you end up diminishing their missional capacity. They lose their missional sensitivity. And they, like in any learning process, what's the first thing you learn when you learn anything? How much you don't know. How much you don't know. I was hoping you would say that. <laughs> you, see, you, you come out with, oh my goodness, I, 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 re- I didn't realize how much I didn't know. And, and, um, and people become fearful. And that inclination to go out and invite people in diminishes. Yeah. Well, I've seen it time and time again. And sociologically, within five years, no one has a close relationship. Five years coming to faith, no one has a close relationship with anyone that's not also uh, a follower of Jesus. That's right. So you don't, ha- you don't have any influence to leverage with people. That's the beautiful thing about Alpha and the way that week 10 is the beginning of the, of the next week. And if you don't run a, something like Alpha as a, what they call a rolling program, like if you say, for instance, uh, even 50% of your guests are non-churchgoers, and on average, each guest at the end of the course brings two friends. And everyone gets excited. And half of them who come for the come and see are saying, yeah, I think I'll give this a try. And then you say, wonderful. Our next alpha is in nine months. <laughs> well, you just lost it. Mm. You lost it. And so here's the thing. For most parishes, as they start out, they don't have enough leaders to do it, you can't do everything at the same time. You're not going to start running Alpha as a rolling program in terms of doing uh, Alpha several times a year and also begin to implement small group systems and catechetical systems. But you've got to have a plan to do both eventually, but you can't do everything at first. So uh, it is both ends, but remember that your evangelizing machine is, is not as complicated as you think it might be. Mm-hmm. It literally is come and see. Hey, I'm a poet. So, so okay, okay, okay. I'm cutting in. I'm doing it. Uh, this We are past time. We are over time. So if you've been with us this long, please, thank you for being with us. And I'm sorry, this might be the last time you see me, as I have a feeling I might get murdered in the debrief meeting today for cutting these guys off again on a topic that they clearly are passionate about. Thank you so much for being with us, and God bless. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be part of a parish going through a transformation? Then look no further than Divine Renovation Apprentice, written by Father Simon Lobo. This book is full of practical insights on how to change the culture of your parish to move from maintenance to mission. To find your copy, follow the link in the description below.